You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to this week's episode of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Diana Abu-Jabbar, and her new book, Fencing with the King. In today's episode, we chat how to be a novelist without an MFA, why it's a bad idea to teach when you're drunk, and the weeping involved when working with editors. Also, the super secret, yet not so secret, way to become a great writer. And also, if you're an instructor and you're drunk, then don't tell your students exactly what you think of them. All this and more on this week's episode. Hi, I'm Diana Abu-Jabber, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Diana Abu-Jabbar. She's the author of Fencing with the King, a novel. Diana, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Tony? I'm all right. I just got out of therapy, so I'm all fixed, as they say. <laughs> That's it. You're done. <laughs> do, do you think, yeah, yeah. They, do they ever say that? Does a therapist ever go, I think you're cured? Wow, I would be worried if actually if a therapist said that to me, I, I would think they were actually trying to like get rid of me or something. Oh, you know? in a very passive aggressive way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I, I don't think you're ever, you're ever cooked, you know, I don't think you're ever baked. I mean, you're baked right. in other ways, but yeah, <laughs> not, uh, not in therapy. It'd be, it'd be, I was thinking it would be funny if it would, if I would cross the boundary and go, uh, to my therapist, do you think you and I can ever get together sexually? And then, oh. and then that would be the, I think you're cured. Yeah, right. I think you're cured. <laughs> you're done. Check. <laughs> Bye, Tony. Right, right. You know that phone number you have of me? Can you please throw it out? <laughs> Lose that. Never again. Cross off. Um, you're all well now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I feel like I need a therapist as I'm writing a book. Do you have, do you have the same thing? You know, I think books like they show you what your obsessions are, you know, right. And, yeah. and they, they kind of betray you um, mm -hmm. because you can't hide. I mean, if you're doing it right, I think mm -hmm. you can't hide at all. Um, it's all emotional honesty. And, and I also think that your, your creative life is a direct reflection of your personal life, you know, like what's going on in your day to day stuff it comes out on the page. I mean, sometimes it's in a funhouse mirror kind of way. Often it is, but I think if there's a real close correlation between the two, you can't escape it. Yeah. I agree 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's and it's um it's very vulnerable as you're working on it and then all of a sudden it's out to the public and the public if they see through it they'll see through us. Oh god. <laughs> you're freaking me out, man. <laughs> 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 it's really it's intense i mean um i i more and more uh, and with my writing i feel like i 
go right into lived experience and and I write from these triggers from real life and um, I love drawing on the world around me and people I know and um, it, it, that's the great inspiration for me is is the planet that we live on I mean then yeah yeah your imagination takes over and you you let your characters do their thing but absolutely that's where it comes from is that that great well of experience it's like that that uh emily dickinson quote about tell the truth but tell it slant oh i, I, I like that isn't that nice yeah. yeah that to me that's that's the big challenge tell the truth but tell it slant at least for uh, us fiction writers and i think it's also about um I think there's more honesty in fiction than there is in nonfiction because we're getting to the emotional truths that are a lot harder to get if you're just writing the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a lot of people don't always get that. I mean, I have family members who are completely confused by um, what fiction is meant to be. You know, I have one one cousin who says it's just a bunch of lies. It's a pack of lies, but not at all. I, I I think, you know, fiction, what they say, it's the lie that tells the truth, you know? Yeah, yeah it, it absolutely is. And I do think you can cut more deeply that way by letting the imagination hold sway and take you, take you where it's going to take you. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a deeper, emotional, truer truth. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you said something about uh, your characters taking like I, I'm probably putting words in your mouth. So tell me that I'm totally wrong. But um, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong anytime over the next hour. Okay. I just just go. You're wrong. I'll be you're very wrong. adamant about it. Yeah. It, the more anger and conflict, the better. And then we. Can... Oh, okay, okay. I'll... <laughs> but uh, something you said reminded me of how sometimes our characters make choices for us at some point as when we're writing mm, do yeah. you do you have that experience to how do you does where where you're just like oh crap i can't go there but that character is making me go there right yeah I, I definitely feel like stories have rules of their own you know they they have their own parallel universes and you have to respect the rules of those universes and if you don't people will call you on it i mean people figure out very quickly what the rules are in in parallel universes um and attached to characters they have understandings of who these people are and um and you have to pay attention to that because if you try to make your characters into mouthpieces um which is for someone like me is very tempting to do because I'm always there's always sort of political stuff and cultural stuff that I'm kind of swimming in a lot and so it's tempting to have my characters you know have a party line or an agenda but you can't you can't do that um your book turns into a public service announcement so you got to um got to let them go you got to follow them not have them follow you and um and then when it's done 
it belongs to your readers. You know, it's not, it's not your thing anymore. It's not your book. You don't get to own it. You don't get to stand over people's shoulders and say, no, no, you're, you, you got this all wrong. <laughs> Let me explain my book to you now. So, you know, you poor benighted person, I'm going to unpack it all. Um, you know, I mean, we both teach and, and I'm sure you know the phenomenon of having a student in class say, no, no, you guys misunderstood. This this all really happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, no, it's very believable. It's, yeah, you guys don't believe it, but it really happened. That's not an excuse. The truth is no excuse. And the truth is usually boring. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, you got you got to respect the rules of your fictional world and you got to bring it alive. That's all. Yeah, I like that a lot. The yeah. um and then those those students that say, "No, no, this really happened." You know, I wish I could throw a pen at them. <laughs> I wish I wish it was socially okay just to throw pens at students who say that. <laughs> there should be a law that 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 you know, it's just like it wasn't assault officer. Yeah, right? They yeah. said that it actually happened. And the officer would be like, oh, crap, our hands are clean of this. Yeah, yeah right. this yeah. is on you. So, yeah, I think those days are over, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Student assault is now frowned upon. What? So. No. I know, I know right? <laughs> Why did we get into this business in the first place? The society is collapsing. Right. <laughs> but what we need to do is emotionally assault our students. <laughs> oh, I had a I had a, a teacher do that once. I was taking a um, a writing workshop, and um, the teacher, who will not be named, he went to a wedding before the seminar. It was a night seminar, and and he came in and he was you know smashed. Oh dear and, lord! Yeah, he well he was ready to tell the truth and. Uh, uh -huh walked around the classroom and he told all the students exactly what he thought of their work, which was quite a bit lesser than people had anticipated. And um, it was just so disastrous that uh, he left people sort of floored and weeping and, and um, knocked out. And, and a bunch of the graduate students had to stuff him in the car and, and drive him home. And and I, I'll never forget thinking about how, you know, as writing teachers, we have to continually do this kind of juggling, this balancing of um, telling people the truth about their writing, but telling it to them in a way so that they can hear it. Um, yes. You know what I mean? It's, oh, definitely. Yeah. It, people need they need to know, but you have to give it to them so that you can cut through the static and the fear and the anxiety and the anger and all that other stuff. And um, boy, I guess we're back to your therapy session. <laughs> if you could make me weep by the end of this interview, this, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but it's, you know, I do joke about that, but how that, in, how that teacher came in, one drunk is just terrible. And then two, I don't think there's, there's any um, positive. There's no 
um, forward momentum if you walk around and tell your students something like that, because there's always, I feel like there's always, well, most of the time, there's, there's something redeeming about the work. Yeah. And, yeah. and then we can go, hey, this looks great, but you know what? What if we add these peripherals? Which, and I love to think of it as kind of like, I feel, I feel like, although I always tell my students, you're the God of your story, but you have to serve your story. It's about serving right. your story. And what I'm here yeah. to do is serve you as the God of your story, as you serve your story. So I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get the best story possible. And that's, what's most important to me, but I want to serve you in the process because you're the channel essentially. Yeah. So, so yeah. when I kind of bring it, like when I bring it like that, then I feel like they're more open to feedback because the feedback's coming from a place where I want them to be great. I want them to blow my mind. I want them to be bestsellers and never talk to me again. This is, you know, is just that that's what I have. That's what I crave. And I can go, I knew them when I knew them right. when, right. and they'll be like, right. no, you didn't. And I'll be like, well, maybe I just, well, let's, you know, I'll write a book about it. Right. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right on. You are trying to help people get to the place where they can deliver the best story that they can, because in a way, it's like you are trying to create the best world that you can. You know, I, I honestly believe that all people have an inborn need to be creative. I mean, even tax accountants and, you know, corporate lawyers need to be creative. We all do. We just don't recognize it in this culture and we don't value it. We look upon it as some kind of kooky, you know, mental illness almost. Um, if somebody's creative, if somebody wants to grow up and be a writer, it's like, you know, oh, tell me another one. Um, but if you can help, if you can help midwife, you know, people into being in touch with their their visions and their voices and their stories and and help them create this wholeness on the page and you create a wholeness in the person and and then that translates to the rest of us you know we all we all benefit from each other's best stories yeah and it's and what's great about this is i'm a fan you know, I'm a fan of the, the, the reason I'm the reason I'm a writer is because I'm such an insatiable fan of writing mm. and I and I want and I want more great stories out there. And I, yeah. you know, I, I don't want people to write bad stories. Let's get in. I mean, you know, let's get in here. You know, you can write stories that I may not like, but do your best at your craft and your angle. That's right. That's <clears throat> it's, right. You know, romantic comedy, fantasy. Great. Let's dig in. It's not I'm not the audience for it, but let's make it the best thing for your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I, you know, I write, I write more, I guess, fiction, you know, I don't know how to, how to categorize it, but I love all the genres, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of horror and science fiction and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, how it can be done well and how when it is done well it's transcendent and it doesn't matter what your genre is or what your idea your launch pad is if you really tap into um the the truest story and you get to the best the deepest parts of character then 
all those other considerations kind of, you know, they just sort of fall away and then you have something wonderful and it's like art and it speaks to you. So, yeah. Yeah, I've had students who come in and go, you know, I teach uh, screenwriting now and they're like, I'm writing, I'm sorry, I'm writing a rom-com. And I was like, you need to take sorry out of that because if that's the story you need to tell, you need to tell it for a reason. And also rom-coms are important to the mythology of the human experience. So take charge. Yeah, absolutely. I think storytelling, you know, in, in film is like our great, our great voice now it's the voice of our time it's the it's the format of our time you know the visual and the all the the way that film draws all the senses in in together um you know i think that is our medium right now and and all all of us as writers can learn so much from the cinematic experience you know it's a great tutor um and yeah, rom-com for sure. You know, that's just that's just coming off of of Shakespeare and and Romeo and Juliet. And I mean, you can see all that kind of stuff. Canterbury Tales. That's rom-com is all the way back there. Um, and somehow we've learned to devalue it. I guess because uh, you know things have become corporatized and franchised and stuff. And that has a way of kind of you know cheapening things but but it doesn't have to be at all you can have greatness and in all forms of storytelling yeah the storytelling storytelling is my religion i tell people it's just it's it's the way i get through it all that's what religion is right religion is story it's it's narrative the bible i mean pick your pick your poison (laughs) so yeah I mean, it's all like these are narratives to help us understand the ineffable. And, um, you know, that's the way I see it. It's um, these are these are narratives to help us make our way through this wild miasma that is our existence on this planet, which who knows? (laughs) Oh, I love that. The um, and even just, you know, reading dead authors it's like it's like going back it's like time traveling and the dead are talking to us you know people are like if people are like i don't know if i believe in uh talk you know communication with life after death i'm like i do here read this henry miller book he's dead right right and it's just as alive and vibrant as it was when it was written it's it it speaks to you i mean talk about a test that's why I think I tell so many writers that they need to read in order to really um, to to have that apprenticeship. You know, um, that that was how I learned how to write was by reading those books that that endured through through decades and centuries. Um, I didn't get an MFA. Um, I teach in an MFA program, but I did not get an MFA. Um, Congratulations. I, I, you know, I only graduated high school and actually teach at UCLA Extension. And (laughs) and most people need MFAs to do that. And I got in just off of my experience because I'm crazy (laughs) that way. Cause it's just, cause I live my whole life in a weird way where anyway, but you teach at an MFA program with that one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do because I I read and and I think 
that's that's how you learn is you know i'll tell students or anyone somebody just asked me the other day a librarian what i want i want to write you know where where should i set start and i said you've got to figure out what you love to read you know that's to me that's the first assignment like don't read what you think you're supposed to like you know don't read what you think is supposed to be great or you know or scorn what you think is bad um put all that kind of all those preconceptions aside and um and really be honest with yourself and and look at look at what's in your in your office or in your home or on your dining room table whatever um what is it that you're reading what's in your bathroom right now that's that's your first key to self and that's the place where you begin you know and then you dive into that and you become the best whatever writer rom-com you know fantasy whatever it is you become the absolute best because you learn all of them and you find out what has been done and what can be done yeah i like that friend of mine i always <clears throat> i gotta attribute this quote to her unless she took it from someone else janet fitch <laughs> she says that reading is breathing in writing is breathing out and that made oh, so much sense to me that's beautiful i love that yes yeah. I should write that down so I don't. Yeah, forget. yeah. Use it and then just attribute it to Janet Fitch, and then we'll find out if she uh, oh. just didn't attribute it to someone else, and and then uh, someone else will get mad at us, right? <laughs> and then we'll get mad at Janet. We'll be like, "Thanks, Janet. Thanks for putting us in that situation." Right. <laughs> I know Janet. She's awesome. Isn't she? Okay. She, yes. she she is one of my favorites. It's, it's she. Oh. I I adore her. I adore her to no end. Yeah, I, I, yes, me too. Me too. I've had her and her, I've had her husband on the show too, because he wrote a book about um, writing comedy about a year oh, and a half yeah. ago. Yeah. And so. Uh, so he's yeah. a comedy, comedy writer. Uh, yeah. He wrote for uh, Johnny Carson show and he's written for a lot of like uh, those, those types of shows. And it's just uh, fascinating cool. to hear his experiences. And um, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, it's scary to the idea of um, I'm married to an editor. Mm. And, um, yeah. That's useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird. It's weird. You know, we constantly we we have these conversations where I'll bring him. I'll bring him my rough drafts and, you know, early pages and stuff. And we always go through this process where he reads the stuff. And then he tells he, and then he'll say, "I'm not going to tell you what I think," and and you know, and I'll say, "Well, don't tell me," and he'll say, "No, because you yell at me," and uh, and every time I'll swear, I'll promise, I'm I'm not going to yell. Just just I'm a professional. You just tell me what you think, and uh, I eventually talk him into it. And then he he gives me his his honest opinion, and and then I get really upset. <laughs> <laughs> And I say, no, you're dumb. You don't know anything. You're not the person I'm writing for. Why did I show it to you? And then I'll take it away. And I'll go sit. I'll go stoose in some corner for, you know, about 15 minutes. And then I'll think, wow, he was really, really right. 
And, um, you know, and then we just do this over and over and over again, where it's um, like, I seem to need to do this, this torturous thing. But yeah, once I get over that early resistance thing, it's incredibly helpful to have yeah. that. Yeah. It's yeah, it's and well, it's got to be taking notes from an editor and then taking notes from an editor that you have an intimate relationship are two different things because yeah. you're just like, why would I take your notes because there's still dishes in the dishwasher. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my book editor would probably would probably argue that we have an intimate relationship too. She's very uh, she's very hands on and. Um, She's been my editor for like, I don't know, 20, 30 years, almost 30 years. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we know each other so, so well and and we're really good friends. And it's such a complicated, um, challenging, amazing relationship because she's she's a genius. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced she's an absolute genius. Her name is Elaine Mason. She's at WW Norton. And, um, you know, she sees stuff all the time that you could give me a thousand years and I would never see it. And um, yeah. Yeah. It's and having that long-term relationship also probably gives you a shorthand on um, communicating what needs to be done. Yeah. Where it's just like, you know, oh, you didn't put the curve on the worv and the herve. And then you'll be like, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's true. You, you start to know each other's stuff and, um, you know, and, and I realized that with her also, I go through that process of resistance and, um, you know, pushing back and, and I often will try to get around her commentary. And I think this is very common. Um, I, I'm in a writing group. I don't know about, are you also Tony in a, in a writing group? No, I'm not, but I, I kind of need to get in one because I'm at the middle point of a novel I'm working on. And then it started I'm getting to the point where I'm like, okay, here we go. This, yeah. this now needs to be ripped apart by others. So you need your beta readers. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I see it over and over that um, like in the writing group, the other, the other writers, do, there's varying degrees of this, but we all seem to go through this process of being, you know, not assaulted, that sounds bad, but confronted with, um, you know, with the humanity of our work. And, and that means, you know, that means there are things that need to be, or maybe could be tweaked and altered and shored up and, and we all seem to go through this process of saying, no, 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 um, I know best. I have the clearest mind. I am the artiste and, um, and fighting it. And then to varying degrees, you know, after negotiating, after the 10 stages of denial and grief, and <laughs> um, you know, coming around and saying, okay, I, I get it. I get it. And then you, then you really grow. And, but the whole process is important. And, and a part of it is our ego, but we do need our ego as yeah. writers. I mean, to, to, to put a pen to a paper 
takes a little bit of delusion and ego, I think. Yes. And it's, I mean, you have to, there's no, or there's no pen to paper. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's, it, I guess it is like, um, you know, a, a kind of vast trust in your voice. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I'm from this this immigrant family, you know, and um, my dad and his brothers, they would do this thing where after we ate, I mean, dad always did the cooking. So there was always that. And that was part of the storytelling, too, was the cooking. Um, and then he would sit around with his brothers and they would all tell stories. And my mom would always do this thing where she would stand up. My mom is not Arab, she's Irish Catholic. My dad is Jordanian. Um, and so my mom would collect the dishes and she would say, and now the Irish Catholic will do the dishes. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and I would see like the Arabs will tell the stories, but the Irish Catholic will do the dishes. Um, I realized from an early age that you want to be the storyteller, you know, you want to be the one who sits at the table and, and gets to mold reality. And, and, and it was um, so frustrating for me as a kid because I, I couldn't talk as loud as my father and my uncles, you know, I was just meant to be an audience. So for me, I would go downstairs to my bedroom, what our house was upside down the bedrooms were downstairs and the other stuff was upstairs i would go downstairs to my bedroom and i would write and that was my turn to hear my voice basically that was my turn to tell my stories um because i couldn't get a word in edgewise at the table and and so to me that's what it really comes down to is getting your turn at the table you know, getting your chance to hear your own voice and to um, tap into that, that place, that secret, that those secret stories from really inside of you that you don't get to share otherwise. Um, so yeah, just essential. If, yeah. if you did have a loud voice, and you could take control over those tables, you may not be a writer today. No, right? I know yeah. none of those guys. Well, actually, that's not true. Some of my uncles were, um, I had a one who wrote poetry, um, but mainly they were academics. And, and I do think there is something there about, you know, academics who, um, and I'm not, this is not in any way denigrating. This is you know, just a, a cultural difference, I think, but there are academics that their art form is in their voice, you know, it's in their lecture, it's in their presence in the front of the classroom. Um, and that's awesome. That has never really entirely been me. I, I can tap into that sometimes, but um, it almost feels like ventriloquism a little bit. Um, yeah, for me, the voice is on the page. That's, that's where it feels most um, comfortable. I, I had a, uh, a person who was organizing writing seminars ask me about this one time. She said, I can't figure out where you come from. Um, 
because I didn't have the kind of pedigree that she thought writers usually do. Um, she said, I see a lot of writers come from writers and it does, you don't look that way. You know, you don't have that kind of um, pedigree. And, um, and I think it's just that in my family, it came from storytelling and, and that was, that was my pedigree. It wasn't, it wasn't graduate programs. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't anything that we would consider literary. Mm -hmm. It was, um, uh, more grassroots than that. Yeah. So when she was talking pedigree, she was at, she was kind of asking about your, um, the schools you've been to. Yeah, basically. What wow. are your qualifications? Yes. Yeah. As construction starts outside my window. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It never fails. I'm impressed you can keep your windows open. I can't do that right now. Oh, it's really? Why is that? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm in Los Angeles and it's um, not too shabby right now. So, it's, oh. uh, I mean, we're, we're in like 70s. Ish. oh no i can't hear this you're in florida right you're in <laughs> it's like the... 90 it's like 90 and swamp it's oh like, my god yeah. yeah the forecast is swamp it's nothing else a swamp yeah well give us give us a cut give us a month or so and it'll be like a hundred and death that's so. true, that's true. <laughs> we'll get ours we'll get ours <laughs> it's true it's true it's and I, I find it so intriguing when um because I like uh, I, when it comes to people who go through MFA programs or don't go through MFA programs, all I care about is how are you going to become a writer, and yeah. you, you sometimes some people really need that and some people actually kind of don't need it and it's it yeah. it's how you get there is your journey, and then what that what you produce is actually the important part. It's not yeah. how you, it's not what boxes you checked off in order to get to the place in the, in the correct, in the so-called correct way. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I have my idea of what the correct way is, which is my way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do it my way. Cause that's the correct way, but you know, well, there's people... a lot less student loans in that situation. Oh yeah, there really are. I mean, I we're still paying off my husband's student loans, by the way. You know, so he did I, it wrong. Yeah, he did. Twenty years <laughs> later, we're still we're still paying them back. Uh -huh. um, you know, and I do. I I always mention that to students when they ask me about if they should get an MFA degree because the these programs are incredibly expensive they're wildly expensive and and i think it's you really have to know why you why you're doing it um and i think it's very very important that people know that it's not the only way that it it is a way and it's and it's great um i i do believe mfas they give you time and space to work on your writing. They justify it and they give you an audience of, of serious, thoughtful readers. And these are all precious things, but they don't give you magical powers, <laughs> which, you know, you really have to bear that in mind. Um, they, don't, uh, they don't give you a job at the end. They do give you a credential, um, which, may or may not uh, qualify you for uh, teaching 
uh, if that is indeed what you want, which is not for everyone at all. Um, it is one way, it is one step in, in the process. And, um, and it's not an easy process, you know, like we were talking about before, it's, it's not something that our culture really um, supports. So I do think that it's really, really critical that you have an idea of how to take care of what needs to be taken care of in your life, you know, and for most of us, that's, that's the bills, you know, that's food and shelter and children, if they're in the picture, um, you know, you have to take care of your bases, cover your bases. Um, and if you can cover your bases, then your mind can be freed up to be creative. If you are sunk in anxiety all the time, it makes it much more difficult to relax into creativity. Um, and if you look historically at the, the great writers of our times and the ones that we've known about, many, many, many of them have been supported in some way. So I always like to bring up um, the economic aspect of creativity and artistic production. Um, in the United States, we have this idea of, you know, the American dream where you, it's a meritocracy and you can go forth. And if you just work hard enough, then, you know, great things will happen and you'll have a career as an ex, um, whatever it is. But, you know, it actually is more complicated than that. And for a lot of us, you know, we're starting at a tougher place. My family was middle working class, really. My dad did not go to college. Um, my mom was a reading teacher. You know, money was always an issue. We all took out student loans. It wasn't clear that um, any of us were going to be able to afford to go all the way through college. Um, so all these things had to be considered in building into a creative life. And I thought about it right from the beginning. I would encourage anyone who wants to be a writer or produce art in some way to make a plan. That simple, make a plan. And, um, and it's, it doesn't have to look like everybody else's plan. It can just be what you can figure out to do if it's driving an uber fantastic you know do what allows you to pursue your art and that that's always been the way i've made my decisions what will support my art that's that's how i base my professional decisions will this job help me write or will it actually pull me down over a waterfall of committee work and you know advising and stuff like that and you have to be a little bit pragmatic about it but it it really helps that's okay that's my <laughs> no, I love that because in that situation and you know I've had to take I take temp jobs here and there um since I live uh -huh. in Los Angeles I haven't been on set in a while but 
Um, I'm with Central Casting, and if they need uh, actors for a couple days, have a mustache, then I get on set and go make <laughs> my money and eat their free food. And um, it's but, awesome. Uh, That's awesome, Tony. I love that. Yeah, and, yeah. At the, and at the same time, it doesn't feel like work because I'm working to be a writer. So yeah. even if I'm doing a job that I that supposedly you know is not up to par with me and I don't like, it's not that I'm doing that job. It's that I'm working on this because I'm a writer, because this yeah. supports the writing. So everything supports the writing, no matter what. And that's then right. all of a sudden, when you're working in a warehouse throwing boxes, you're actually, that's part of writing. It's yes. Just, yes. Know? Yes. You never know where it's going to come from. You know, it's, I worked for years in, in the food industry. Um, you know, I waited tables and, uh, after I started to hate the customers, then <laughs> I got in the back of the house and I oh, that hatred is deep because I did wait. I was waiter and I was a room service guy, and and then I was just like, um, so I don't commit homicide. I have to quit. <laughs> I'm out. I can't believe how awful yeah. people can be. I mean, it's truly oh. like monumentally, people can be very awful. Then you realize it's their problem because if people are rude to waiters, that means that they live really crappy lives and they're, yeah. they're it's, it's, it's a sad existence they have. And like, yeah. see, I, I, I'm, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm single at the moment. So it's like, I'm, I'm dating here and there. And when I say here and there, I mean like once every two months, so I don't lose uh -huh. my mind, but, um, <laughs> but how somebody treats a waiter is yeah. huge that's that's a litmus test yeah, yeah. I and agree. it's just yeah or if you see them then they leave like a 10 percent tip and you go oh and that's the end of this and yeah. we're done no no and they're like but i'm um i was i was sports illustrated swimsuit model and i'm a you know and i'm i'm getting the man booker prize and i'm like 10 percent. i'm out i am out right on tony yes <laughs> i agree i absolutely agree i mean when i was in graduate school and i had zero money i would still leave 20 percent. i mean i was just like absolutely you don't stiff you don't stiff the people who are all working alongside you. You know, all boats rise and fall on the same tide. And yeah, I I feel very strongly about this too. And and the, you know, all those all those gigs, all those different jobs that we worked, they all feed the writing. You know, they all when I went to um I went to Jordan, this was you know, 20 years ago. And I thought I was going to write a book about Palestinian women. Um, and I didn't write the book. I spent a year in, in Jordan and researching and interviewing people. And all that time, I thought, you know, I'm writing this book, I'm writing this book, I'm writing this book. And at the end of it, it didn't come together at all. But 15 years later, I started thinking about that time and then suddenly it's turning into this novel, you know, and it's like, you never know where those sources, where those roots, where those seeds are going to come from. And, and that's the great thing um, about being a writer. I mean, I, I guess, was it Garrison Keillor? Someone said nothing bad ever happens to writers because it's all material. I love that right yeah it, it's kind of true um yeah. and and that's how 
we all need to look at it. We all need to see that, you know, for me, spending that year on this grant to write a book that didn't come together, that was kind of a disaster. You know, um, it, it, the, the book was rejected and, um, and I'd spent like five years working on it and it was devastating. But then out of the ashes of it grew the next project. And, and I really do believe that that's how we've got to look at, at all these things like, you know, having a writing journey that is more challenging perhaps than other people's, you know, those of us who were not born into, you know, Kingsley Amos's writing tradition, you know, we're not the children of uh, Henry James. Um, we weren't supported, we weren't given trust funds, um, we weren't sent through graduate school. That's okay. That's, that's absolutely okay. And in many ways, it's better um, because the, the, the grit, you know, the, the, the struggle is where the layers are. That's where, that's where all the interesting stuff happens and all the flavors come out. So it's your marinade. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, not, I, I, not all, I don't, I have no problem with people with trust funds, but I've, I've seen some of them um, just, it's, it's almost worse to have a trust fund than to be in poverty if you're hitting creativity, not that I'm a fan of uh, poverty either. I don't, I, you know, I'm not one of those guys that's just like, Hey man, you know, you're not doing it right. Unless you're in the gutter. It's just like, right. no, just, but it's, but, but the, but a sense of everything taken care of. And then you know, like, if there's no anxiety in your life and you have the white picket fence, I think it's probably harder to really sit down and hit that, hit some of those emotional notes then if you, because if you've never had, if you never didn't have that, well, there, I guess I shouldn't knock it because there's a whole literary genre of people that understand those books because they're like, oh, I get this. And those are the books I go, I have no relation to this whatsoever. Right. They're like, oh, but it's great because blank, blank, blank. And then I go, oh, wait, that's right. You have generational wealth. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's just. <laughs> It, it, there's, you know, I'm not one of those guys that thinks I'm not an eat the rich person. I don't like all those polarizing things. I'm, I, you know, we're all human, but it's just, I don't get it. Cause I don't come from that world. So there's a, there's a huge disconnect for me understanding that story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's definitely, it's like a problem I'd love to have, you know, so. <laughs> right. But at the same time, I sometimes I've been around it a little bit and I'm like, you know, the, it, it, the, I think as humans, we have to have problems. We have to have struggle. And when there is not problems in a certain degree, I've seen people create problems for themselves because yeah. the problems aren't there. And that's where it's a little disconcerting because then it's a, then it's a creation coming from inside to create problems around you. Yeah. And, and that's where it's just, that's where I see the sadness in it. And it's, we all, it's like, it's really, it sucks. We need problems. 
it sucks. We need struggle, but that's the human condition. It's kind of like we have to struggle. It's yeah. And but I, I, for me, I try to steer the struggle into my storytelling. It's like, oh crap, this isn't gonna work. And then if I could steer it, then I like, okay, other struggle stays out of the way. Yeah, right. It, it's true. It is. It's like channeling a kind of energy, really. Um, it's. I have a, this sort of theory about. Um, I I don't want you to think I'm obsessed with. <laughs> economic class or anything but but it is one of those kinds of topics that is kind of fascinating to me and and how it relates to creativity and you know i'm i'm always telling my husband that i really think that inherited money is very dangerous um i think that you know i have i have cousins who were raised with a lot of wealth and and because of all that cushioning I don't know if it's because of it. I shouldn't say because of it, but they were raised with a lot of cushioning. And I see that they are very kind of confused about what their goals are, what their purpose is, where their forward momentum is. There's there's not there's not the drive that there needs to be. They're not hungry enough in, in some weird way, if that makes any sense. Um, and I also see how, especially with inheritance, um, that it's something that makes people crazy and, and it tears families apart yes. and it just, it's never good. I mean, it's just, I, I saw it in my husband's family, there was a bequest that got kind of hijacked and it, and it alienated a bunch of his relatives from each other. I saw it in my family, um, which is why I, in large part, why I wrote um, Fencing with the King was because of this inherited uh, huge amount of money that got kind of hijacked in the family. And I would think about this, like what, what is so, so compelling to someone about money about a chunk of money that they're willing to sacrifice their relationship to their entire family. Yes. You know, what drives people to do this? Um, and I come away from it thinking it's almost a form of mental illness, you know, that the disconnect from, I, I, I feel like health is connection, that that's, that's where happiness is. That's where health is i mean fundamental stability and health is from connecting with people with the good energy you know if you got the good energy and you get to be around people with the good energy then you get the good energy and tearing that apart for money is so destructive and toxic um and so uh God, I don't know where am I going with this, Tony. I'm just like oh, on I, my rant now. <laughs> no, it's but it, it, I, I think you're going to a very important place because it, it's um, we have to have our purpose and and money and I, I've I've seen the money grab in my family. There's people I don't talk to anymore because they were crazy and the, you know Grandpa died and their eyes just went dollar signs uh, and it, I was just like. 
Yeah. Are you out of your mind? Can we all have a conversation here? And it, there was no, there was no conversation. It was just pure, um, just really ignorant anger. And, and I'm like, I can't be around you. And it's, and, and it's, and you bring up a great point. It's the, the abundance. I'm not against money at all. Bring the money on. I'm open for it. But the abundance is, um, the abundance is our relationships. The abundance is the good energy we have between our fellow humans, between our family, between our friends that, that can, that is there, whether we have the money or not, because our character of who we are and their character of who we, of who they are, when we come together, that's the abundance. And if yes. it's sharing a sandwich at a deli, or if it's at a five-star restaurant, it doesn't matter the location. It's just, it's let's be here together. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, money tends to separate people when you have a lot, a lot of money, you know, it, it takes you into this other place, you know, they don't, they, the, that idea of the 2% that, that is, that is a real thing that not only are you, you know, in this uh, elevated space of making so much more than anyone else, you're also in this lonely space, there's only 2% of you. Um, who are you going to be friends with if you, there's only 2% of you. Um, you know, I had a student who was very, very wealthy and he told me it was really hard for him to trust people and to have friends because having all that money made him feel like that's what people wanted him for. Um, they weren't seeing him for himself. They were seeing him as a source of, you know, uh, resource, money, fun. And yeah. they, and, um, and I, I've been around celebrity here and there and it's, and you, and celebrities get that too. And, and people don't realize some celebrities don't have a lot of money. It, they, oh. you know, just because you're, you've been in some movies here and there or whatever, it doesn't mean, you know, you're rolling in it. Right. Yeah. But, but, but they're not, they're looking to these people at, because they know them as a celebrity and in whatever industry, so I think the way I think, you know, and I, I'm in, I'm no celebrity in any way at all, but I go to some, I'll go to some of these parties or whatever. And people will be like, Oh, you're, Oh, you're a writer. Oh, you did this. And I see the look in their eyes and it's eager eyes. It's, 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 they don't want to get to know me. They want, they, they have an, they have a, they have an agenda of, I am a stepping stone into what they can get to. Yeah. And and that's where the separation comes in. Cause then it's just like, and the minute I feel that energy, I'm just like, boom, turn around. Yeah. I, Cause I can't have that energy. So no. yeah, it's, um, that makes a lot of sense. It's very hard if you have that much wealth to go, is this person talking to me because I'm wealthy or are they talking to me because they want the soul of me? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm always telling my mother-in-law loves to go on these, these tours um, that are super, super packaged, you know, and I'm always saying to her, if you go, if you travel with too much money and too much packaging, you won't ever get any good stories. You know, it's, you won't it's, meet the locals. No, nope. You won't, you won't get any of that great, yummy richness and flavor and texture and that's all from 
from kind of going bare, you know, and taking the risk and, and not protecting yourself so much and not layering yourself in, in your possessions and in your, you know, your packaging. We've got to, we've got to figure out how to stay open to the world. And, and, you know, and like you say, it's not necessarily a knock against having, having wealth or anything like that, but it is about how you stay open, yeah. you know, being vulnerable and taking risks. And, and I've known someone who was, uh, this was back before I got divorced, who was very wealthy. And when he would travel, he stayed in two-star hotels. Oh, wow. And it was to, it was to be on the ground and, okay. it, and, and he just thrived on being on the ground. And it's just like, yeah. And yeah. you know, it's, it's, you, you don't need a ton of money to travel. You can get a two-star hotel, share a bathroom with, you know, your floor and oh my then God. <laughs> go have a cafe that, you know, <laughs> sit at a cafe. And that's what I, you know, can't wait to travel again. Cause I love not staying in the tourist area. I, I want to stay. I want to stay in a little bit of a suburb area. That's not right. that nice looking and just right. show up at the same cafe every day until they're like, wait a second, who the hell are you? And I'm like, I'm Tony yeah. and I live in LA. And they're like, well, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm looking for you. <laughs> right, right. I just moved to Malta and this is my new corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not even in the cool part of Malta. I'm in the- <laughs> right, no. <laughs> no, no Diana, I totally yeah. get it. I totally get it. Thank I, you I, so I, much for coming oh, on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, sorry to stop you there, but that was the hour. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Oh, that was so much fun, Tony. I loved it. That was, that was awesome. Where all is mad as hatters here.
Diana Abu Jabber on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Fencing with the King. Next week on the show, we have Jordan A. Rothaker, and his book is entitled The Pit and No Other Stories. Uh, keep reading, keep writing, keep creating, keep, keep storytelling. This is, this, is, this is all we got. So have a great weekend. I will see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.